The topic this fall is the order salutis. I've already had somebody ask me what in the world does that mean, uh, and it was meant to intrigue you a little. Uh, I'll tell you now in a second what it means, but let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we, as we gather together uh, these Wednesday evenings, uh, this fall, uh, to study Uh, theology together to study what it is that you have revealed about yourself, about your son, about the way of salvation, about our human predicament, about the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit in bringing us to yourself, renewing us, bringing us into a right relationship with you in the gospel, in union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would bless us, instruct us, nourish us, feed us. Pray that this time together would not only inform our minds, but also uh, engage our affections, and that as a result we might be all the more eager to live for you uh, and serve you uh, as the redeemed of the Lord. Now bless us, we pray, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, some of you are joining us uh, for the first time, uh, for sure, and uh, many of you are, are rejoining uh, something that, is, that has been going on for, uh, for two years. This is our third year uh, of uh, the School of Theology, and we are about halfway through. Uh, And um, last spring, those of you who can remember last spring, uh, we were looking at uh, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at uh, his person, we looked at who he is, uh, that he is God and man, that he is God incarnate. But we also looked at the work of Christ uh, and we looked at uh, biblical uh, concepts Uh, like redemption and reconciliation and propitiation and substitution and satisfaction. And we asked uh, some fairly basic questions and and some more intricate questions about the nature of the work that the Lord Jesus accomplished uh, for us and on our behalf on the cross of Calvary. But all, all of what Jesus accomplished, and uh, in your outline, if you turn, and, and sorry, I forgot to, it's been a busy day today, I forgot to put page numbers in this outline, I was working on it early this morning, uh, but, the, but the second page, uh, point two, um, I, I'm not going to read that quotation, uh, it's a lengthy quotation, but it's also a very well-known quotation uh, from Calvin, it's uh, the third book of the Institutes, but basically what he's saying, and if, let me, allow me if you will, uh, allow me to put it in my own words here, but so long as that which Jesus has accomplished isn't applied to us, then, then it's of no use. It's, it's merely something for academic study. For, for, for what Jesus did to become of use to us, it has to be applied to us. And that's basically what we're going to be thinking about this fall, the application of the finished work of Christ. How, 
How is that which Jesus accomplished on the cross, propitiation, satisfaction, substitution, uh, reconciliation, atonement, uh, whatever word, and there are many words and concepts that the New Testament applies to what Jesus did on the cross, how is that applied to us? So we, we segue from Jesus to the application of what Jesus did in our own lives. We'll be thinking about things like regeneration, calling, faith, repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance of the saints, glorification, and not necessarily in that order, but, but, but those kinds of things. In a way, what we are doing this fall is examining the role. What is it that the Holy Spirit does? We've, we've been, two years ago, we were looking at what the Father did. Last spring, we concentrated on what Jesus did. This section is, is a part of what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit takes that which Jesus has accomplished and he applies it to us. And he applies it to us, well, how? Does he apply it to us in a certain kind of order, a certain kind of sequence? Well, the answer to that is partly yes. You can't believe, you can't repent unless, first of all, you have a new heart. So, unless Jesus' work is applied to us in such a way that we are quickened or regenerated or given a new heart, we cannot exercise faith or repentance. We cannot experience what it is to be adopted into God's family, and so on. So, regeneration must come before faith. Well, if you're reformed, you say that. Hello, this is the ARP. This is the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. So, so part of that word reformed in the name of our denomination, the history of our denomination, is in part an argument with other Christians. And, and this is a school of theology, so let's, let's name them Arminians. Who, who believe that we still retain free will. So, so they will argue that we can exercise faith before we are regenerate, before we have a new heart. Already, do you see, this issue of the application of redemption, well, it, it divides various sections of Christendom. And... and Part of what it means to be reformed, part of what it means to belong to that reformed heritage from the Reformation, actually from Augustine uh, through to the Reformation, to issues in Luther and Calvin and, and the 17th century and, and the Puritans and the Westminster Confession and so on and so on, deals with this issue of the Order Salutis. Now, Order salutis then just means the order of salvation, or if you like, the order, 
point one, the order of the application of redemption or the application of salvation. And it was a term, uh, those of you who are history buffs here, uh, it's usually assigned particularly to a man by the name of Jacob Karpoff uh, in 1739. Some of you love to have those little bits of information. Now, the concept, of course, uh, certainly arose during the Reformation. It was something that was talked about a great deal uh, around about the year 1600. It was something that was very much uh, on the agenda theologically uh, in the middle of the 17th century when our Westminster Confession and catechisms, shorter, larger catechisms were uh, written and and so on. But actually, the, the issue itself... Well, it's medieval. It's, uh, it's an argument between the Reformation and Roman Catholicism uh, in the medieval period. They too had an order of salvation. It involved a commitment to a seven-fold treadmill of sacramental obedience. And, and the assurance of salvation and the way to heaven involved that obedience to those seven sacraments. Well, let, let's cut to the chase here. Point three, uh, is, is there anything at all in the Bible to justify uh, spending uh, this fall uh, studying this particular topic? to justify an order of salvation? And the answer is, uh, well, let's have, a, let's have a quick look at Romans 8, uh, 28 through 30. Uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, a general statement of God's providence Uh, Both in the macrocosm and in the microcosm, God rules over every event from beginning to end. Uh, Everything that happens, happens because God wills it to happen, because he wills it to happen before it happens, and he wills it to happen in the way that it happens. And then in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined foreknowledge in a biblical sense here, meaning something like set his affection or love upon, uh, the, the way the Bible uses the word knowledge, to know God knows in the sense that he sets his affection upon. So those whom he foreknew, he predestined in eternity before creation, before the foundation of the world, before space and time, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what he did in eternity affects our eternity, that we might be conformed to his son. But then in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And and we've shifted from something in eternity to something in space and time. Uh, we are, you and I, if we are Christians, if we believe in the Lord Jesus, we are the called ones. Uh, Paul will often use phrases like called into fellowship with his son. Uh, we've received this call, uh, a, 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 a sovereign, powerful, efficacious call that has brought us into union and fellowship with the Lord 
Jesus. Those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, certainly predestination comes before glorification. Calling comes before glorification. He goes from eternity to eternity, if I can put it that way, and in between, he mentions calling and justification. Two discernible elements in the way in which the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to us. Right? If you're going to get to glory, if you're going to be glorified, you need to be called. If you're going to be glorified, you need to be justified, and you need to be called and justified in the here and now. Uh, the Bible doesn't teach a post-mortem evangelism. Uh, it is appointed unto man once to die and after death the judgment. There, there is no post-mortem evangelism. So if we're going to be glorified, this, this calling and justification must take place in the here and now. Now, does that, that, that's a kind of, well, some people say that's a kind of embryonic order salutis. It's an embryonic application, order of the application of redemption. There's a kind of, well, there's a kind of sequence here. Uh, the question that gets a little more tricky is, is it a, is it a chronological sequence? And uh, theologians get uh, all bent out of shape here because they fixate on the chronology. So you have to be able to discern, uh, what, have, have I been called as a definite experience? Have I been, before that, have I been regenerated? Have I been called? Have I experienced faith? Have I experienced repentance? Have I experienced justification in a sort of chronological and perhaps even experiential order? Uh, that handsome-looking uh, dude there on page, uh, what would have been page three, uh, is uh, William Perkins, phenomenally important uh, theologian. Uh, if you had been a minister, say, in the late 1500s, uh, 1590, 1595, say, and you were called to the ministry, uh, you probably would have gone, uh, well, you definitely would have gone to either Oxford or Cambridge. There really wasn't nowhere else to go. Uh, and, and if you had gone to Cambridge, this would be the guy uh, that you would have teaching you uh, the center point school of theology. Uh, William Twiss, you notice he didn't live that long. Uh, and he wrote, uh, he wrote a, a magnificent uh, volume uh, actually, he wrote altogether 10 volumes. Uh, uh, some friends of mine uh, and myself are in the process of resetting all of these from an old Elizabethan English. And, and uh, so these volumes are going to appear. First one is appearing in a few months. Uh, there'll be 10 of them uh, over the next uh, 10 years. Uh, if God uh, spares uh, us to do that. But one of the most important books that William Perkins ever published... Uh, was a golden chain. 
Uh, those are not misspellings in the title, that's old Elizabethan spelling. Uh, and notice the length of the title, a golden chain or the description of theology containing the order of the causes of salvation and damnation according to God's word, a view of the order whereof is to be seen in the table annexed. Now, that, that's a kind of weird thing to say in a title of a book. Uh, but the annexed uh, thing that he's referring to is this uh, on your outline. A uh, little chart, which, I'll, which I will promise I'll get to that in just a minute or so. Now, there are critics of the Ordo Salutis. Um, uh, critics for uh, all kinds of reasons. We don't have time to go into the, the, the whys and wherefores of these reasons. Uh, Karl Barth on one side has criticized it, uh, Weber on another aspect has criticized it, but even, even orthodox theologians sometimes get themselves all uh, bent out of shape on this issue of the Ordo Salutis. Uh, I have quoted there in 4a uh, Hermann Ridderboss. Now, uh, let me bring this home. Hermann Ridderboss is Paul, uh, written of course in Dutch, was translated by into English by Dr. DeWitt, right? So this brings it all home to us now. And what does uh, Hermann Ridderboss say? Uh, there is no such thing as a systematic development of the order salutis, a detailed doctrine of the anthropological application of salvation. Well, that's true and, and, and not true is my response to that. Uh, there is no detailed systematic development to be sure. That's true. Uh, whether that sentence is meant to imply, as some read it to imply, that the whole notion of studying the application of redemption is illegitimate, uh, we'll, we'll discuss that on a, another occasion. What some people say is that the New Testament is more concerned not with the application of redemption to individuals, but rather the way in which redemption flows in the course of history. So that you've got, you've got a timeline in which the gospel manifests itself in the time of Abraham, in the time of Moses, the time of David, the time of the prophets, the time of John the Baptist, uh, the time of Jesus, the time of Pentecost. Uh, and Pentecost is a significant moment in uh, the transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. So, so what is Paul saying in Galatians 3.23? For example, he says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Is Paul speaking sort of personally and experientially? Uh, until... Until the law convicted him of sin, uh, is, that, is that what he's saying? Until he, he was held captive to the law, uh, until, until faith came, he was, he was sort of held captive in a treadmill of obedience to the law. Is, is that what he's saying? That was his experience. And then he saw justification by faith and he was converted and so on. Or is Paul speaking much more objectively about uh, the flow of redemption uh, along the timeline of history. Uh, there is the, the period uh, under the law. Perhaps he's thinking of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. 
uh, the period before Pentecost, the period before the coming of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And, and is he speaking objectively of, of the history of salvation or is he speaking more subjectively in terms of the way in which salvation is applied to him? Now, uh, this, is a, this is a hot and controversial and, and very controversial subject today. Uh, it's probably one of the hottest uh, issues uh, in, in uh, our circles later on this fall, especially when we come to look at justification, uh, we are going to have to consider uh, that in a, just a little bit more uh, detail. Uh, there are those who say that the, that the emphasis, and let me, let me summarize it, and, I, and, and seminary students, you just be quiet for a second. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to over, over, over simplify this uh, just so that I can encapsulate it in a few minutes. But there are those who are saying that the overwhelming emphasis of the New Testament is not on personal salvation in terms of experiencing, uh, experiencing the work of the law, convicting us of sin, uh, bringing us into a faith union with Jesus. Uh, that what the New Testament is much more concerned about is that there were Jews who were very proud of their lineage and heritage and, and their, their cultural status and the fact that they had the law and they had circumcision and they had uh, the food laws and, and these identified them uh, as the covenant people. And, and what the New Testament wants us to understand is that the that that covenant is not just for Jews, but it's also for Gentiles in, a, in an objective sense. Now, now that, that discussion is, uh, is, uh, is one that has uh, just become very, very heated uh, in the last uh, sort of 25 years, uh, tending to read passages in the New Testament much more objectively uh, than, than subjectively, more about the history of salvation rather than uh, the order of the application of redemption uh, in, in me. Uh, and uh, I, I want, of course, to uh, argue uh, during this fall uh, that the New Testament is, is actually concerned about both. Uh, both of those aspects are deeply, deeply embedded in the New Testament. Um, let me remind you of Calvin's question again. So, so, long, so long as that work of Christ isn't applied to me personally, it's only of academic interest. It's, it's, well, Calvin's words are, it is useless. It is of no value to me whatsoever unless that work is personally applied to me. Now let's look at some of these uh, charts and uh, let's start uh, with the chart that is a table, uh, this one, um, and uh, we, we, we don't have time to look at, um, at all of this tonight. Uh, let's, let's look at the extreme left-hand column. This would be a a standard uh, order of salvation, beginning with calling and regeneration 
faith and repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, union with Christ, and glorification. Now, I'm going to, um, I'm just going to say uh, the, the place of union with Christ in that order, uh, I simply put it in that order because that's the order in which John Murray uh, has it in, in his book, uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Actually, when you read the book more carefully, uh, John Murray wants to put union with Christ almost as a kind of umbrella uh, over, the, over the entire discussion of the order salutis. A bit, like, a bit like the hub of a wheel, so that calling and regeneration and faith and repentance and, and, and justification and adoption and so on are like the spokes of a wheel that, that relate us, that bring us into union and communion with Jesus. And the center of that wheel is union with Christ. Now, we'll, we'll come back to consider each of these separately, so we'll talk about union with Christ. So, so that first column is a, is a little misleading. Now, is John Murray saying that we need to be able to identify each of these in our own lives? You know, when was I called? When was I regenerated? When, was, when did I first exercise true and saving faith? When did I exercise true and saving repentance? Does faith come before repentance or does repentance come before faith? The answer is yes. Uh, because the New Testament uses, uses both. It talks about faith and repentance and repentance and faith. Um, and, and John Murray is saying, no, it, it, he's, he's not... He's not thinking of these in terms of a chronologically experienced thing. But he is saying these are all aspects that you can pull out, as it were, and focus upon. There is an aspect of our salvation that is called faith. There is an aspect of our salvation that is called justification. There's an aspect of our salvation that is called sanctification. And you can, you can pull these out. Now, is there, is there any chronological aspect to this at all? Well, yes, there is. Because you cannot exercise faith and repentance unless, first of all, you are regenerate. Uh, if you pop over one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, into the seventh column, the column headed Arminianism, you notice what happens. You've got repentance, faith, regeneration. Because for Arminians, the, the central core of Arminian belief is the freedom of the will. The will is free to exercise itself in whatever way it chooses to exercise itself. It has the freedom of all possible choices uh, and, therefore, uh, and therefore it has the ability to believe faith and repentance. It has that ability before one is regenerate. Now, the Reformation, of course, uh, Luther in particular, uh, and, and particularly then uh, over the next 100 years uh, in the wake of the Reformation uh, signaled that that was, uh, that was entirely false, um, that, the, that, the, that the will of man uh, is, is dead in trespasses and in sins. It's not, it's not on life support, it is dead. 
It, it cannot exercise uh, f- freedom of all possible choices. It can only will within its own nature, and that nature is fallen. Now, in between, uh, you've got uh, various nuances. Let me take the second column uh, just as an example of some of the nuances. Uh, Robert Raymond, you notice union with Christ is at the top of that of that column as, and in parenthesis as a, as a kind of overarching umbrella uh, for consideration. Uh, but notice uh, as you go down, uh, you see a, a distinction between definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. And when we come to talk about sanctification, uh, we'll, we'll want to consider a little bit about what, what that means. Uh, that distinction is of recent origin. It's, I think, a biblical distinction, um, it, but one that wasn't greatly emphasized uh, in the 16th or the 17th uh, century. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, for example, he calls them saints. He says, uh, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. They are the sanctified ones, the holy called ones, or the called holy ones. We are the holy ones. We are, what are you? If you're a Christian, you're a, well, you're a holy one. Now, I doubt that you want to go around telling people I'm a holy one. But actually, that's what the New Testament says. You are a holy one. You, you have been called to be a holy one. Someone set apart in union with Christ. You're a holy called one. What, what are you? I'm a, well, I'm somebody who's been called. I've received the call. God has called me. Out of darkness into light. I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. I'm I'm someone who has heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. I've been called. Well, um, let's, uh, let's leave that there because I want to... Uh, I want to have a little bit of fun uh, with the charts. Now, this is going to test your eyesight. Uh, This chart uh, of William Perkins, and let's look at the William Perkins chart first of all. Uh, It's called an ocular catechism. It was uh, it was a catechism for the eye. Uh, it needs to be blown up, you know, ten times the size that it is here. We will look at this in detail l- later in the fall. This is just kind of hors d'oeuvre. This is kind of things down the line that you can think of. So I, I don't want you to look at all the details tonight. That, that's why I didn't bother uh, giving you a, a blown up version and setting up our, our hard working uh, uh, printer uh, in the office uh, dizzy. Um, but let me tell you something about, uh, about this chart. This chart was enormously popular. Uh, it is uh, thought that in the early 1600s uh, to around 1640, 1650, uh, this chart uh, would have been in every Puritan home, every Christian home, if I can put it like that. Uh, it was that popular. Uh, it, it, was one of the, it was one of the study aids uh, that uh, folk used in their homes to talk about this issue of the application of redemption. Now, let me tell you, because you can't read it, but let me tell you, going down the very center of that chart are 
uh, bubbles. Uh, well, it begins with God, and you've got, uh, you've got the Trinity at the top, and then you come down uh, creation, the fall of Adam, uh, and then you've got, uh, you've got um, uh, bubbles uh, going off to the left, and a sort of gray line, uh, which is the line of redemption, and then over to the right, you've got the line of damnation, uh, and, and uh, uh, you've got those who are called and those who are not called, uh, and, and uh, you've got the way of salvation and the way of damnation on the left and on the right. Going down the very center uh, are bubbles, all of them relating to Jesus. Uh, you've got creation, fall, and then you come to Christ, the mediator of the elect, uh, the holiness of his manhood, the fulfilling of the law, his accursed death, burial, bondage under the grave. Uh, and then you've got resurrection, ascension, uh, his sitting at the right hand, and intercession. So, so the, entire, the entire life of Jesus, uh, from beginning to end, his, uh, not just his death upon the cross, but what, do you remember last spring? Active and passive obedience of Christ. So the, the whole obedience of Jesus in the course of his life, and, and then his obedience uh, upon uh, the cross. Uh, notice to the left of that, uh, you've got things like uh, faith and remission of sins and imputation of righteousness and mortification and vivification. If you go out, another set of bubbles uh, you've got effectual calling, justification, sanctification, glorification. Those are, those are the uh, things that we're calling the aspects uh, of the application of, of uh, redemption. Now, we're going we're gonna to look at this in, uh, in all of its magnificent uh, detail uh, after we've got... We need to get some categories of thought together uh, this fall. Uh, so we need to consider some of them individually before any of this makes sense. Um, but one of the things that Perkins uh, was trying to, to do uh, was answer a very pastoral question. How, how do I know that I've been effectually called? Well, the way that you know that you're effectually called is that you're one of the elect. Well, that doesn't help much. Right? I, 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 can't, uh, I can't hack into the hard drive uh, of the book of life and see whether my name is written there. So, so what you do, and, and part, of the, part of the motivation of this catechism is always to say, you, you go to the right, right? You go to the center, you go to Jesus. How can I know that I'm effectually called? Well, is your interest in Jesus? Are you looking to Jesus? How do I know that I have faith? True faith as opposed to false faith. Well, those who have true faith are effectually called. But how do I know that I'm effectually called? Because, because I'm elect. Well, how do I know that I'm elect? You know, it's, it's the same problem. But you, you keep going inside. You keep going towards uh, Jesus. So part of this catechism was uh, to say, um, look to Jesus. It, it, it was incredibly uh, influential and incredibly uh, important, but it was one uh, that was based entirely upon the consideration of the topic that's before us this, uh, this fall, uh, the application of redemption, the Ordo uh, Salutis. Well, let's look at uh, another map 
And again, these are just little snapshots uh, tonight. Uh, when I teach... Uh, uh, when I teach theological students, uh, we spend probably two or three hours uh, looking at these maps alone and going through them in, in detail because actually they teach uh, some of it by subterfuge, but they teach an enormous amount of stuff. Um, now, this is John Bunyan, uh, this, uh, this map, and uh, if you look all the way down to the bottom, you've got uh, uh, little cherubs on the left-hand side and... and Something really nasty on the right-hand side. Uh, again, like, uh, like Perkins, uh, Bunyan has a left side and a right side here, the way of salvation and the way of uh, damnation. And uh, uh, Bunyan's is, is much more, uh, as you might have expected, Bunyan's is much more experiential. Uh, Perkins is much more theological. In, in, in one sense, it's more objective, and Bunyan's is much more subjective. Um, and again, uh, we'll take a look at this uh, a, a little later. Uh, just follow uh, from the top down, just, just briefly. You've got a triangle. You've got uh, God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You understand that if you try to diagram the Trinity, you are going to commit five heresies immediately, and this one certainly uh, would be heretical if you took it at face value, uh, that the Son occupies the center and the Father and the Spirit, something in the corner. So, so visually, drawing a picture of the Trinity never uh, works, of course, um, but you, you had to do something. Uh, on the one side, you've got the line of grace, and on the other, you've got the line of uh, justice, uh, look, at, uh, look at the line of grace on the left-hand side, and you see, uh, you see the bubble. It says the covenant of grace. Um, fascinating. Uh, Dr. Davis might quibble here on 2 Samuel 23, 5. Uh, that, that is the central teaching of, of 2 Samuel 23, 5. But you've got the covenant of grace, and then on the other side, in opposition to it, you've got the covenant of works. Right, so remember when we were talking about covenant theology, those who are, you can remember back, uh, and I hope you can, uh, we talked about the whole of history being divided into two covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, and here's Bunyan uh, dividing here all of humanity, uh, either under the covenant of grace or under the covenant of works. You are either trying to save yourself or you are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, and all of humanity that ever was, is, and shall be uh, are, are one way or another under, under the covenant of grace or under the covenant of works. And, and from the covenant of grace you come down, you see a bubble election. It's not actually numbered uh, one. Uh, 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 and so the, the, the logic here is election. Then you go up to the covenant of grace and then you go down to what is number three, to the elect comes by the covenant effectual calling. Right, so you've got something in eternity, election. We talked about that a long time ago. God chooses a certain number to salvation. In Bunyan's way of thinking, he chooses those who are already considered to be sinful and fallen, 
Uh, and out of grace, and he calls it the line of grace and the line of justice. So this is infralipsarian to those of you who are, who are, who are still remembering those categories. But, but the important thing here is that from election, he comes into space and time and effectual calling. And he's going to work his way down through these various bubbles in a very Bunyan-esque sort of way. Uh, he's going to work his way down all the way, uh, if you follow it all the way down to the very end, uh, uh, the last bubble on the very bottom, number 24, wherein it dwelleth to eternity, what we might call glorification. Right, so what, what he's doing is he's working his way from effectual calling to glorification. So the question, uh, the question that we have to ask ourselves this uh, fall as we consider uh, the order salutis is, does the, Bible, uh, does the Bible teach an order of salvation? And uh, if you go back to the very beginning of your outline to Romans 8, uh, 28, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that in part the Bible does single out for consideration aspects of what it means to be brought into the saving benefits of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Uh, and those aspects in Romans 8 are, uh, well, in eternity, foreknowledge and predestination, but in time, uh, things like calling, justification, and glorification. Now, we, we can legitimately ask all kinds of questions. Why does Paul go straight from justification to glorification? Why, why doesn't he mention Adoption. Why doesn't he mention sanctification? Why doesn't he mention perseverance of the saints? And, and a possible answer to that is that Paul wasn't interested here in giving a lecture on the order salutis. What he was more interested in in Romans 8 was to say that when you are justified, when you are declared to be in a right relationship with God, glorification is the end product. There is a guarantee. So, so he goes straight from the declaration of our justification to glorification. So, so whatever happens in between, and there's a lot of stuff that can happen in between. If you are truly justified, you will be glorified. Now that's a, that's a, a wonderful truth, wonderfully assuring. But there's at least... An aspect in which justification comes temporally and even experientially before glorification. All of us who are trusting in Jesus and in Jesus alone for our salvation tonight are justified. That's a lot of people in here that are justified. I hope and pray that every single person in here is justified. But there isn't a person in here who's glorified. Except perhaps in, in one sense that, that the certainty of it is so certain that, that there's a sense in which, yes, I sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus tonight. But I'm, I'm, I'm not actually there, but in a sense I am too. Because tonight I have two zip codes. 
I have this one, which I can never remember. I, I just remember my home one, which, is, which I got wrong when I was putting in my credit card for gas the other day. And, and you know you have to punch in your numbers these days. I couldn't remember what my own zip code. But we have two zip codes. We have here, but we also have there. So, so in, in a sense, I, I want to say Paul and the New Testament generally are often thinking about two things. One, which is how application, how salvation manifests itself in space and time on the, on the sort of course of history. But also experientially, in, in me as an individual. I, I need to ask myself tonight, Am I a called one? Do I have true saving faith? Am I justified? Am I a holy one in in the sense of Paul saying to the Corinthians, you are already sanctified? 